Just a quick note before we get started, this podcast is all about creativity, but it's in the context of how life's slings and arrows can affect the creative process. So if you're vulnerable, please do listen with discretion. Hello, I'm Sophia, and this is my place where art and grief meet. We were talking what it's all about, how this step led to that. From the Hello, dear listener. This is episode seven of Where Art and Grief Meet, and today we're going to start with a little story. Once upon a time, there was a young woman, her name was Sophia. And she used to use her flybys points to subscribe to interior decorating magazines. One day, more than a decade ago, she was flipping through the pages of Vogue Living when she was stopped in her tracks by the most fantastic painting she had seen for years. Gladly, the artist, Marina Strocchi, was credited as the creator of the work And Sophia set about stalking this artist and her love of Marina's work was tattooed on her soul. Fast forward to the end of 2021, Sophia decided to do a project about art and grief and loss and how the creative process is impacted by life's slings and arrows. And she realized that this was actually an opportunity of a lifetime because she actually had a reason to reach out to Marina Strocchi, her favorite Australian artist, and maybe have a conversation with her. She was emboldened and I can't talk about myself in the third person anymore. It's driving me nuts. So what happened was I wrote uh, an email to Marina, not knowing exactly where she was living or what was happening. I knew that she'd done an exhibition from a residency in New York. So I just sent an email into the ether. And as the wonders of the world are with technology and everything, I got a response back and Marina said she was going to be happy to talk to me. And would I like to come to her house? And So I jumped at the chance. I was so excited. I knew that I had the technology I needed to do this recording in person, which was different to how all the other recordings had been done because they were all done by Zoom. But that didn't matter. I had the technology and it was all going to be well. The day before, I decided I better check the technology. And I was thrown a little because I realized that there is a glitch with Mac and it won't allow two external microphones to be inserted into the machine. And I had no other means of doing the recording. So I could not use my external microphones. I had to use the technology that is built into my computer. I didn't think it was going to be a big problem. I went forth with all confidence and an enormous amount of enthusiasm. So when I arrived at Marina's house, which is in the bush, and I realized her house is actually being renovated. And consequently, there was a lot of extraneous noise happening while we were talking. 
I'm not bothered by that because I know that the content of our conversation is compelling enough that you will completely disregard any unwanted sounds and also the crappy quality of the recording. I do apologise for it, though. The other thing that I need to say is when I got there, I was so excited that I started talking and then while I was setting everything up, I kept talking and we started having a conversation and we just kept talking and it meant that there was never a formal beginning to this conversation recorded, which is kind of a bit of a rookie error, but hey, I'm sure you'll overlook that. I'll tell you a little bit about Marina. She is um, an internationally exhibited painter. She has a printmaking background and you can see that that is reflected in the nature of her work. She has spent a lot of time, many, many years working with disadvantaged communities and she's also worked with Australian Indigenous communities setting up the Kunji Artists Collective, which I'll put a link in the show notes so you can have a look at that. She's a very dynamic person and she had a breadth of experience and also an insight into art and its therapeutic value when it comes to trauma that I had no idea about. I mean, I just went and talked to Marina because I loved her work, but really there was so much she had to offer to this conversation that I was quite floored. So I guess all there is to do now is to press play on this conversation so I can share it with you. But you do need to know that what Marina's talking about in the first instance is a response to my question to her about what her relationship with art making is and how she became an artist. So here's Marina and me um, and the builders. Well, I always like to have, to have busy hands. So, like, as a child, I was always, I was like, my mum and aunt, grandmother taught me how to knit and crochet and sew. And um, at school, I always loved the art class was my favourite. And then I started to look, you know, I was just a look, like to look, look at stuff, look at art books. We had art books at home and... Um, I started to walk the streets and go to the galleries and as part of my year 12 I did extra classes in photography and so it was, it was about, you know, I was developing an eye and, and I had busy hands and yeah. then I went into graphic design. I was going to do fine art but, like, I went to fine art departments of the art schools back in the day in the 80s and the late 70s and no one was there, just didn't look like anything was happening. So I, w I chose to do graphic design, which was a good choice because in those days it was a um, like a trades course and so it was very practical and very, you know, you, you did, we did life drawing. I loved doing life drawing. Yeah. I loved drawing and then screen printing. Yeah, so, it, you know, it was always like in that realm and then I did community artwork with small community groups and but you know then when I met Wayne Eager who's my husband and another group of artists called the Raw Studios mm -hmm. Artists and I looked at what they were doing and it was like like you know what they were like living the dream like mm -hmm. and, and he planted a seed in me 
that one day, you know, I would maybe do my own work. Yeah. Um, I, I was doing my own work in a way by, by being artist in residence in certain, you know, like community groups and but I was working as a community, what used to be called a community artist. They call now community artists, they call social practice. They call okay. It. Call it social practice. And you were, you're making art, it's not like as an expression of yourself, you're making art for the purpose of the community. Well, you know, like things like, you know, well, I, 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 there'd be a brief, like so the brief mm. would be, you know, go insert yourself into this community group of Greek women in Richmond who don't speak English but have all experienced breast cancer, whether it's from oh, wow. their own experience or they've lost a daughter or a sister or an aunt or something. Mm-hmm. So I worked with an interpreter and we produced four posters in Greek to put around places in Richmond where these women would go, like doctors, clinics and things like that, so that there would be in Greek some message about looking at your breast and making sure you don't have a lump and things like that. So, so, you know, projects like that. So I was working with the brief and I would draw and then I started to do my own screen-printed tea towels Mm -hmm. and that was when I, and it was partly through hanging around with people who were painters Mm -hmm. that I kind of like, well, I somehow was trying to, forge my own way so I started my own screen printing designs um or tea towels and they they were they were like my first kind of voice of my own as a like finding my own Mm -hmm. way and then then I had these community art skills so one thing led to another and I went and lived on an Indigenous community um and started a studio, Wayne Eager, and I set it up together with at the invitation of the community and a couple of members of the community were um, instrumental in it all happening. Um, and we start, and they all started painting and screen printing and, mm. you know, it's still going to this day. And yeah. Ikunji, yeah. So in watching those artists develop and helping those artists, and I was doing all the footwork and you know like preparing the canvases and photographing them and and Wayne was really good because he'd been part of Raw Studios and so he had the ability to you could see that the the artists were really doing good stuff and and then a while into it all I started to feel like everyone was painting except me and I I wanted to paint mm. and I'd been drawing a lot. Like I'd been drawing in sketchbooks, drawing the mountains and doing little drawings with pencil, just, you know, like HP pencil. Mm-hmm. And then Wayne said, well, why don't you just do your own paintings then? Because I was getting angry. Like, you know, I read about anger. I bought a book about anger and because and it was like, you know, you get angry when you're not your own needs aren't, aren't satisfied. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one reason. Mm-hmm. And so that, that I identified with that and um, I started to develop my own work and I started, Wayne gave me, you know, a stack of blank sheets of paper that were just sort of offcuts mm-hmm. and I did a whole series and, and then, you know, one thing led to another. So, you know, it was, I don't know what the question was again. Oh, I was asking you about your relationship with art making and how it came about. Yeah, so there you go. So it sort of came about 
I was always drawn to look at things, you know, mm-hmm. anything that was brightly coloured or, you know, I was always loved wool and mm-hmm. tapestry thread mm-hmm. and um, embroidery thread. I've, you know, always had, you know, a stash of embroidery threads. Yeah. I even click there you have a bag of cotton because I can't go to the op shop without buying cotton because you can't, you can only get black and white at the supermarket yeah, unless yeah. you go to a specialist shop. So I'm always, you know, like craft. But then at some point Wayne said to me, you know, you really got to give up your craft projects and just focus on painting. And that was probably 22 years ago my gallery dealer in Brisbane said, you know, if you want to take yourself seriously as a painter, which I don't, um, (laughs) but if you want to take your career, you know, to another level, you've really got to give up your day, you know, your day job, which was only part-time at that stage and um, just paint full-time. So I Mm. did. Mm. I did. I started to paint full time. So when you had a full time painting, when you decided to take it seriously and do that, what did that look like? Like were you nine to five, seven five days a week, or what? What did it look? Well, like? Well, I was pretty serious even when I was working full time. Like I had when I was working full time at Bush. That's when I also was publishing the book, the Kunji book. So. I was pretty busy. Like I had phenomenal energy. So Mm. I was 30 and I was working full-time in the art centre. I was in the morning and at lunchtime and at nighttime I would paint. Mm. And then I'd also work, then I started to work on this book. The book that Marina is referring to here is called Ikunji Paintings from Haas Bluff, 1992 to 1994. It's something that is out of print now, but it is available secondhand. So I'll put a link in the show notes and you'll know what you're looking for if you want to seek it out. It's a compendium of the artworks that were created by the arts community. Marina was an integral part of setting up. The next clunky transition in this podcast episode is is my asking Marina what it was like going from being a person who had a job but was also painting to being a person who was purely devoted to painting. Well, it felt it felt completely luxurious. Like, I mean, it's it's a privilege, yeah. You know, because I'd spent so many years working to help other people paint, mm. and that was a privilege as well because. Mm. You, you have the opportunity to watch someone blossom yeah. and, you know, support someone and not it's an it's a delicate art to be a mentor to someone who's who might already be a, a painter, but you can see that someone who's doing work, you know, but it's about getting the person to mentally trust themselves yeah, to take a le- leap of faith. Mm. So it's it's a delicate art because with the Aboriginal, they call it the Aboriginal art industry, you know, there's a lot of pressure on art centre coordinators to have a product. Yeah. But but I I don't, you know, I understand that the product sells but you know, there's a whole other way about of going about it, and that is, you know, you determine. You know, you you you're the, you lead it. You know, like if the paint, if the artist is in a good place, feels comfortable, has everything they need. There's jokes. It's a good environment. Yeah. 
there's affirmations around and it's all positive and it's good, you know, that artist might might go to another level. Absolutely. Totally but good, if you're yeah. breathing down their neck saying, no, we need another one it's just like that line. one, it's a production line, then everyone gets a- anxiety about it. But also it shuts down the creativity. shuts down the creative, takes away the fun. And so, you know, like that's exactly right. And so but to be paid to go out and do that work is an honour, you know. Yeah, but you're walking a fine line. Like you are, like when you're doing that job with those people in that situation it really is a walking a fine line it has to be viable but on the other hand the whole point is about creating a flourishing artistic living breathing environment not a factory exactly so that there is a big difference and that it was a good job that I was always painting the whole time I was working with Indigenous artists because I wasn't in a position of longing to paint myself. Mm-hmm. I was already. Mm. So I didn't need to live out my creativity through what the artist did. So that helped mm-hmm. um, because there's nothing worse than someone who went to art school and then wants to determine how the Aboriginal artists... Oh, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that people want are resistant to it. Like people, it just... What it does, it just changes the atmosphere. Mm. So it's not like, you know, I'm not. It's it's a colonial thing, you know. To to, so you know, it's a delicate, very fine line. But I think having my own painting, it divorced me from any sort of like, you know, I, I attachment to the attachment yeah. to what they were doing. I, I wasn't it. attached to what they were doing. I was attached to the idea that I wanted to see them go their own way, Mm -hmm. flourish in their own work. Nothing to do with me. I wanted them, you know, like, and then I I could see that you can see someone has potential just by the way they attack something, you know. So, you know, and it. so, yeah, my own work was separate to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that was an advantage. I wasn't a frustrated artist working with a bunch of artists. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what oh, I mean? Yeah, it makes a huge difference. In terms of going from an urban environment into the outback, how did that change? I mean, obviously it's such a different environment. What were you doing artistically prior to your, or you were screen printing and doing these? Yes, yeah, screen things. printing tea towels. So yeah. that was different. So what and was working what was, with long-term unemployed people in Oakley. Okay. That was screen printing as well. Yeah. When you went to the outback, to the Central Desert. Central really. Desert. How how did that influence what you were what you were creating? Or what you were reflecting? Were you finding it was pulling something out of you or were you reflecting back the vastness of what was around you? Where had you I think I was reflecting back the vastness that was around me. Yeah, like the, I was overwhelmed by the beauty of nature, mm. you know, that nature because it was the first time that I lived in nature. Like mm. you're in this tiny little community surrounded by pretty pretty well wilderness except for the fact that there was a community there but and there's been cattle, you know, there's a lot of invasive species and yeah. things like that. But so but it was not quite wilderness but um, pretty well on the edge of wilderness 
And so to live in that environment was a privilege as well and because I would never have been able to live there unless I was connected to the community, you know, working. So, yeah, I was affected by the light, the, the mountains, the colour, sand, everything. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful place. How, how do you describe what your, your style or how, how do you describe what you do? I describe it as evolving. Mm-hmm. I think it evolves, yeah. Um, I think I have a screen print background and I think that affected my eventual development. Mm-hmm. Initially I did um, gouaches of landscapes when I was living at Hustle's Bluff and then I sort of flipped back to a sort of linear thing that had I developed through screen printing. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, drawing is my thing, was always my thing, was drawing, yep. you know, not sort of flat areas of painterly colour, it's drawing. Yeah. Um, so, and I, you know, influenced by everything I see, yeah. you know. Um, I was really into Cezanne and Matisse and Picasso, got more into them. Paul Clay, and then obviously I went to the desert because I was interested in Indigenous art. Mm. So I was interested in what was going on there. Each month of this project is dedicated to a different theme. And in February I'm doing um, Indigenous Australia is a theme. I want to acknowledge the questions are never asked about what is Australian. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's too easy to think Australia is a young country because Federation came when it did and I think that's all bullshit and that as we will grow up as a country when we fully embrace what came before. Exactly. So I am really interested in, in exploring that. So that's, that's part of what my awareness is. But I'm wondering if when you were, I feel odd asking you this because it's an observational question, but did you observe in amongst the communities that you were living in that there was an active grief regarding what had been taken away from them and what was imposed? What, what was your well, impression? That's a good it's a complex question. Yeah, it is. But um I'm speaking now as someone who's much more aware of trauma mm-hmm. than I was yeah, thirty years ago yeah. when I went there. And that's partly because trauma is the new black. Trauma is people are much more aware of the neurological disturbances that occur with trauma. Mm-hmm. And we now have, we can talk about it more in 30 years since. I know more about it. I know now that there's epigenetic trauma, there's intergenerational trauma, chronic and acute trauma. But 30 years ago when I was living on, like, full-time on a community, I didn't have those words to talk about it. I thought that I, I knew that colonisation was the main problem, yeah. but you can't move forward if you 
you know, if if you say, you know, okay, colonisation is the problem, let's all get back on the boat that came in yeah. 1788, we'll get back on the boat, we'll, we'll all leave, all the white people will leave and then it'll be all right because it's Doesn't not going to be like that. So I didn't know that I didn't connect people's behaviour with trauma. Sure, okay. So I connected it with... Well, the more obvious thing of like, because where we lived, it, it had, it was three hours from Alice Springs, mm-hmm. which sounds like a long way. Um, but there was a lot of alcohol consumption on the community and that led to a lot of violence. So we lived in a pretty bad place for alcohol. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I, you know, I knew that the question was, was I aware of people's grief and ha- and how it connected to colonisation? Was that the yeah. question? Were people actively impacted having a, an awareness of, of, of what was actually feeding into what was going on? The people I knew at Hearts Bluff would, would just be getting on with their daily lives, yeah. but um, they, people relied on welfare because there aren't any jobs out, mm. out there. So they got land rights, people got land rights, but, you know, like, and there aren't any jobs, but it's, it's more complicated than that because sure. people don't have, in general, education back in 30 years ago was uh, scrappy, you know, mm. like sometimes the school teachers just didn't go to school to teach at the school. And so the school was closed, so the kids ran wild and mm. that happened very often. And they used to come and visit the art centre. And so, um, you know, like people defined their lives from knowing their families and all their connections to their country and family all out right at west and every which way that yeah. they had relatives or you were a white fella. Yeah. So a white fella was some someone who came from outside. You could be African and still be called white fella. Sure. So um you know black African. And so people got on with their lives but that they knew that Clearly, you know, living in a catastrophic situation. Yeah, and um, the catastrophic situation was unavoidably due largely to colonisation. Yeah, because the desert people were, uh, some of the people we knew, well, they were born naked little kids out mm-hmm. in the bush and their parents were definitely born naked in the bush and had a, a lifestyle that wasn't easy and that wasn't non-violent. There were lots of warring and killing and killing parties and things like that. So it wasn't like there wasn't bloodshed, but they had a healthy lifestyle and they had a structured lifestyle and they had knowledge that was inherited from generations and they had, a, the, you know, there was no intergenerational trauma. They had, they were, it was all... Yeah, it wasn't all fine, but you know. But where there's humans, it's not 
lacking conflict. Any yeah. human interactions involve conflict. But then, but then you had, but then the fallout from European colonization is has devastated mm. their culture. And what's happened is that because it's so traumatic for people, and then you know, there's just there's a lot of death and. Mm. You know, people are always grieving and there's always tragedies and um, that cycle um, which, you know, you started as soon as people came into Papunya and it started straight away there. I've just been writing about it. But when you lose knowledge of lifestyle and you yeah. lose family members too soon and mothers lose their children, then then they lose their grandchildren, you know, it's... It's it's really a place of grief. But that's not to say that people don't get up every day and they can't make a good day out of it. Yeah, yeah. They they have mourning and then sorry business and then it finishes and then but it does ha- have a, you know, the dripstone effect on people's psyche because it's a lot of depression and substance abuse and it's hard. It's really hard. And there's no, you know, the one great thing that's, that's uh, well, I say that because I'm from, um, I'm into painting, but, you know, there's people become park rangers, they become teachers, they become nurses and health workers and manage communities. And, but it's, it is for the, for the mass of people who, who got a scanty education because it's way out in the bush and school teachers, if they can get away or, Whatever. I mean, some school teachers were great, so I, I'm not can't generalize. Yeah, no, of course. but but people's education can be patchy, and there's no secondary education outpush. You have to go into town for that, or or down to Melbourne or somewhere else for secondary education. You only have primary on the community, so some people just don't, and they get a they're not literate and numerate in English, so you know painting has been one great way and and the the thing about painting is that um, it makes people feel good mm. so you know like people do it partly because it makes them feel good and it's been a success people have kept doing it because it makes them feel good yeah yeah and it relates to their ancient culture as well yeah it relates to the inherited culture from you know, they're using chukapur, they're using sort of What's image. That? Chukapur is like the dreaming, the, okay. you know, like the the law and everything. It's they're using modifying and adapting, you know, ancient cultural practices that were used in caves, on the ground, on bodies and um, on artefacts. You know, they that's all getting, you know, morphing into, you know, this modern art form. Mm. The fact that people can, it's like I think of art as a different language and it's it can communicate. Most people are open, it can communicate without needing to use language, which is extraordinary mm. um, that it does that. But also as a way of managing grief, as a way of managing joy as a way of managing the spectrum of human emotions um, or human experiences even is um, part of what I'm interested in exploring. But 
particularly the ideas around where there's grief and loss and how that impacts not necessarily the material that's being produced but the processes that sit behind that. And so there's all different, some people that I've spoken to have had this real grief seems to cause people to come to a crossroads Mm. and some people it it brings up so much stuff from the past it's almost like now that that person's not there I'm allowed to process things from my childhood and all of this stuff there was one lady I spoke to who she wasn't able she just said I never she never felt that she was good enough to be an artist so she didn't ever make any art um, but she always wanted to and she always felt that well, she had that voice. I didn't start painting properly till I was 30 mm. and that was partly because I didn't feel I was worthy of it, you know. I didn't know what I would paint and, you know, um, and that was silly, wasn't it? And what was the, so the, and the catalyst that gave you the permission to explore well, it was my husband a, said, you know, just just do it. Everybody else, uh, everyone else was doing it. So but you, just you also said before that you were actually starting to get quite resentful. Yeah, well, resentful that I was doing all the lackey work and I was the one doing all the drudgery stuff and everyone else was painting and they were happy painting. And then, but so I started painting and then I was happier. Mm. Still had to do the drudgery work and paint, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but when you know, for me, like, you know, I've talked a lot about that Aboriginal side of it but for me you know um when I left living on the community and went full-time painting mm. well I felt for about 10 years I felt like I was processing the experience the, the 10 years before mm. which was living living in this intense mm. situation of grief and loss but you know like people aren't defined by that. No, you know, they are resilient. They are so strong, and they have their feet on the ground. They know who their family are. They know which country they're from. Like I'm the daughter of an Italian immigrant and and um, Anglo-Saxon descendants from immigrants. You know, third generation Australian, fourth generation. You know, so. Do I, do I feel more at home in Italy? Sometimes I do. You know, like do I feel at home here? Is Australia my home? Well, it's where I am. But, you know, like I don't have that sense of place mm. and belonging that Indigenous people have. Yeah. And, um, well, the fortunate ones, like the stolen generation people, have an added layer of trauma sure. because they don't know even their parents' names or where they're born and they have all that loss. Mm. So they still have a sense that they're from this land, mm. which we don't because no. we're, we're, we're um, immigrants. Yeah, I, I actually had an experience. My family, no one in my family is from Athens at all, but I did have an experience when I went to the um, Acropolis in 2005 where I was standing just on the top, and apparently there's some thing with the stars and yeah, like, yeah, it's like done. yeah, and it's amazing. However, that is, I've, I've, it's been explained to me, but I'm a bit um, dismembered, whatever that word is, uh, and I I don't know about numbers, but I I had this experience where I was there, 
And I actually had the, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was part of that place. I felt at peace and I felt like something absolutely visceral shifted in me. Yeah. And it was, see, the thing for me in Greece is I don't have Greek language. My Greek language is so bad that I can't put sentences together. So I understand words. I can kind of understand what people are talking about, but I can't speak. So your parents didn't speak Greek in the home? No. Well, okay. And so as it happens in every organic and unstructured conversation, Marina and I wandered down a little side pathway and it took a minute for us to get back on track. But when we did, it was after I asked Marina if she ever felt artistic block. Well, you know, every time you're faced with a blank canvas or something, you you are to a degree. I mean, there was a time I did this big survey show, which was a big project in itself and a distraction from painting. Um, but it led to the book and then it, I had all this work so, you know, I thought, oh, I could do it, you know, I could do this survey show. And so that was a distraction and then once it was up on the walls and touring and then we did the book, well, then when I went back to my studio, it felt like it had been a severance, like that. So you had to start something. I had to start all over again and I and it wasn't going to be, usually when I paint there's a thread from one piece to the next, like mm-hmm. it's like stitching or something. Yep. It'll all thread together and it'll be a continuum. But after the survey show it was like could be confronting because I wasn't going to, I'd made a definition, like I'd, it, I'd stopped and yeah, yeah. done and then where and starting again felt like I was starting again for the first time. So was that good in any way? Did that have any positive? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was, um, you know, groping in the dark a bit. You know, like yeah. just trying to find my way again. Um, just as a person who's new to the whole experience of or painting, particularly. I, because I don't have any expectations of my outcomes, that groping in the dark thing for me is uh, incredibly enjoyable. I fully embrace that. Mm. I don't have any expectations of what I want to produce, so it doesn't. So I think it's kind of different because you're knowing. So I think other people would have expectations. Are you affected by? No, other I don't see myself as known because I don't know who you know. You know, like I'm in a bubble. I'm in my own head. Mm. You know, I, I live in my own head about it all. I don't, and you know, it's always a surprise, or to you know, meet people and, and oh, I've seen your work. You know, yeah. and that that's lovely. But you're not. I'm not very conscious of it. It's not something I'm, I'm conscious of. You know, it's not something I think about because oh. I'm thinking about you know other things. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you you hope that people see you. They do see your work, but it's always a surprise when yeah. someone. Like, you know, to hear that you, you've been following me and you know my work, well, how you even found me? And I thought, oh, that she's probably found me because I've done that trauma thing, the trauma fellowship thing. No. And you hadn't heard anything about it, but yet my work, something about my work spoke to you and, um, yeah, so, yeah, no, it's always a pleasant surprise, but it's still a surprise, like, because you, you know, you, you're not, I don't, you know, I don't consider myself known, very well known. Yeah. I think um, 
the thing that's coming across to me about you is that there's a resilience and a self-containedness about you and also that would follow through to the way you approach your work and all of that 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 means that there's a, a foundation like you're very firmly grounded so the slings and arrows of what's happening around you don't impact you that much in terms of your how you stand on the ground is, is that a well, well that sounds great like <laughs> I'd like that to be true yeah but, um, yeah, I'm a strong, I think I'm strong, you know, in character, strong personality. You know, probably some people would find me too potent maybe, you know. I'm, I'm not a shrinking violet. But um, I've got a really supportive husband and um, Iggy Wayne and, you know, but, you know, I've done some tough things like living on the Aboriginal communities was really hard and then we adopted our daughter who was adopted at six and a half right. from an orphanage in Tonga wow. and she had um, a lot of trauma. Um, and, you know, she'll have that forever but it's just how you manage it, you know, mm-hmm. how you live with your trauma. And I had a traumatic childhood, you know, it wasn't uh, very good. My father was a partisan in the war and he brought his war trauma to the family. And um, my mother had a very hard life as a married woman and from her, the era, you know, the era of, you know, toughing it out and yeah, no post- self-help or anything. She had loving parents. Um, so, you know, I think that I've become more grounded through painting. Mm-hmm. Like I think... Um, I don't think I really matured. I think I was a late person to mature, like because of my upbringing, like the childhood trauma incidents. And, you know, I think that I had like arrested development or something in terms of emotional maturity. And I think that when after I left working, living on the community and we established a studio and each and I actually could feel it all just dropping yeah, away yeah. from the life on the community. And I think probably to a degree, you know, more than just living on the community, I think just the more I painted, I could feel stuff dropping away and just sort of feeling more, you know, like it's, I found it very, like if I can't paint, I get a bit twitchy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then I know now because I looked into, I did a fellowship uh, where I went to, a, a, um, I called the fellowship Art, Trauma and More Art. Mm-hmm. What I did because of my background working with Indigenous artists, I wanted to find out more about how to talk about art and trauma and mm-hmm. how art helps traumatised communities. And so that was the art, trauma and more art. The one thing that I found from that was that what's going on in remote Aboriginal communities is the most effective form of art therapy that exists for First Nations people Mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. There isn't anything like it that's going on in the Navajo or the Sioux Indians or the Inuits or the Polynesian people have, you know, everybody has something that they do but not to the level that it happens in Indigenous communities in Australia. So I think that's something to do with the fact that the the communities that 
the longevity of the communities and it's taking people back to a really core expression in a really pure way. I think it's just really good luck. You know, I think that the um, it started, you know, it's just started um, probably in the 30s with making stuff for tourists, but, you know, in the 70s it started with Papunya Chula and then it just spread like a wildfire and it's 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 you know they exhibit in madison avenue that in beyonce has a, a, a an first nations artist work yukuchi napple napanati she has her work on her instagram account steve martin the comedian he promotes australian indigenous art you know it's it's big around the world it's in europe you know so that's a phenomenon that doesn't exist in any other first nations yeah. communities and, my, and and for Australia, it is the most yeah. significant art movement that has come from Australia and gone internationally. So, um, oh, yeah, so I did this, this fellowship, right, because I wanted to be able to understand what was going on. And so why is it that art is therapeutic mm. in communities that have experienced extreme trauma? So in America, I was able to listen to people talk about how they used art to help children process the trauma of Hurricane Katrina or um, catastrophic um, incidents of gun violence, like um, like mass mass shootings, school shootings in particular, school shootings. So they work with children who've been through school shootings. They work with, you know, the African-American kids who've, who've had this entrenched life of parents on crack or, you know, watch their mum get murdered or whatever, things like that. But nothing Indigenous, nothing. Yeah. Come across. But the main focus in America in art therapy is war veterans and their families. So it was interesting to learn things like why does it work? It works. Art works for traumatised people because you go into the zone and it's the zone like say you're a traumatized person and you or you've had trauma you know you don't and know how do you identify yourself it's up to you but say you've had a traumatic event and it brings with it you know anxiety and you know whatever else but if you can paint or whatever it is make a doll or make a clay pot or play music or whatever, it's when you're doing that action, it's when you leave your body or you don't leave your body, but when your neuropathways go from how it all is, but then suddenly you get this opportunity that takes you away and that creates a new neural pathways and it's called the zone and you can go to your studio first thing in the morning, 9 o'clock with a coffee and bang, before you know it, the sun's going down. But what happened there? Time gets suspended in the zone and that's very good for people. So that's I'm able to to, to now understand a bit more about why why painting was so successful for desert people and people I worked with and anyone else and myself as well because I had it was traumatic living on an Aboriginal community, five and a half years straight, then another year straight, so that's six and a half years straight, been a lot of visitation, um, you know, like a lot of travelling. So, you know, just, and also living in Alice Springs, you know, Alice Springs is a place where 
the where you see the trauma of colonization it's colonization but it's you know it takes generations to recover from the trauma and so then you have epigenetic trauma so you know like it is colonization but it might be you know equally you know the fact that someone's just died in a car accident and then the family are dealing with that somebody can have a an incident, but the the thing that they actually start grieving is not actually that it might be something that happened ten years before that comes up because that gateway's been opened. Yeah. As well. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's, it's um, and I'm interested about that what you just said about the zone and well, that's where the well, that's where you become fortified. Yeah. Well, so that that's that, and so Ab, Aboriginal people don't get that. Um, Met the mental health services that are available to people in the cities. Mm. Now, mental health services are stretched to the limit in the cities as yeah. well. So, because everyone's um, got anxiety from COVID, um, you know the things yeah. that have happened since COVID. When there's a huge shift from what people think of as normal, it's an opportunity for the lack of resilience or for vulnerability to be highlighted. And COVID was just an absolute cluster in terms of what it did to the community because there was also the thing of when are we going to get back to normal and what is normal anyway and is normal healthy? And so everything got thrown up in the air. Yeah, well, normal might not have been that healthy anyway and it certainly wasn't healthy for the planet. And then, But the the tragedy is that the war in Ukraine followed followed COVID so quickly. So, you know, in terms of global anxiety, it's now like, you know, you've got climate change, which is really obvious. There's no denying it now. I'm not that I ever did, but, you know, yeah. like it's we are so living with climate change. And then we had COVID and then there's the war on Ukraine, the war on Ukraine. Yeah, and then nobody feels quite safe if you find your security outside of yourself. But if you find that your security is, I know where I stand on the ground, then at least all of these things can whirl around me, but I'm okay. Yeah, well, you have to. It's It's been really fabulous talking to you. Oh, thank you. It's been and, lovely to meet and you. And I'm so excited to um, actually have a look through the book and everything. But thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And if you yes. You've given me a lot to think about now too, about the stuff about... um, And so as the sound quality diminishes and the hammering starts again, it is clearly time to wind up this episode seven of Where Art and Grief Meet. Marina is such a resilient and insightful and amazing artist. I strongly urge you to look at the show notes and go to her website. I'm going to put a link to a six-minute film about a show she talked about. It's the survey show and what it was was a retrospective of her artwork up until that point in time and after she did that show then that's when she talked about there being a severance and she had to start all over again. But when you look at that body of work, it is just incredible. Her line work, her mastery of colour, her ability to capture a narrative, everything, it's just, it's too good. So you can go to her website at marinastrocki.com. That's M-A-R-I-N-A. 
S-T-R-O-C-C-H-I.com or there'll be a link in the show notes, whatever's easiest. But do yourself a favour and have a look at her work. And I'm not going to keep talking because I want you to go and do that right now. So by way of goodbyes, I need to say thank you for being on the show to Blue Ant. They provide me with the microphones and the headset that I use when I'm doing this mixing. Thank you to Dallas Cosmos, my super talented cousin, who has allowed me to use his song, Good Goodbye, which is from his album, The Memory Keys. I love it. If you would like to support Where Art and Grief Meet as a project, you're going to find all the information about it that you could possibly want on my website, which is sofansun.com. There is a link in the show notes. And you can also search Patreon for Where Art and Grief Meet if you would like to become a patron, which I would so greatly appreciate. My daily art practice is documented on Instagram at sofcosmos underscore art. And you can follow what I'm creating on a daily basis there. If you found the podcast interesting, do talk about it to your friends so we can expand the Where Art and Grief Meet universe. And I think that's all. So from me to you, it's a good goodbye until next time. Where Art and Grief Meet is a Soap and Sun production produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge Indigenous contribution to Australian culture. (laughs) 